Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says, so we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of Truth. If you have a question, you can submit it in the comment section. Just write the word question in front of it, or a Q, or a question mark, so I can distinguish between a question and the rest of the comments. And then write out your question, reread it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense, and then add any references that you're talking about that we would be able to look them up. Because often when you look them up in context, we can get what the Bible is getting at and what that passage really means. Now, it's good to see you guys. I hope that you guys are doing well. And our first question comes from our study that we had recently in the book of Luke. We were talking about Judas and Judas did things that were foretold for him. In fact, he did bad things that were foretold for him. He did negative things that the Bible said that he was going to do. And so there are people who think that Judas and Jesus were in cahoots together, that Jesus was like, Judas, you're my friend and I need somebody to betray me. Would you do it? And Judas is like, I'll do anything for you. And so that Judas gave up his eternity and became the son of perdition by doing what Jesus wanted him to do. That is convoluted, and that was brought up again here recently in one of our comments. So I wanted to talk about predestination and how that worked with Judas. First of all, I believe in predestination, and I believe in the sovereignty of God. I think that God is all-powerful. God can do whatever he wants to do. I don't believe that God always does what he wants to do because he has given us the power of choice. The Bible says that God desires all men to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. And yet we know the Bible says that wide is the way that leads to destruction and many there are that find it. So God is not going to force them to follow him. But I do believe that God is so sovereign that he gave us a choice and we can choose whether or not we will serve him. God's sovereign enough to do that. That doesn't attack the sovereignty of God. And predestination doesn't mean that God has predetermined everything. God can't sin. God doesn't tempt anyone. That's what the Bible says. And so when someone does a sinful act, it doesn't mean that God foreordained them to do it or foreordained them to walk in it. And extreme Calvinism, lapsectarianism will say that God predetermines everything, even the evil that happens on the earth, and that who are you to talk against God? But the Bible doesn't teach that. I'm not a Calvinist. There are certain points of Calvinism. I don't believe in limited atonement. I don't think it can be defended in scripture. I've heard people try, but I don't think there's a point where it can be defended. The Bible says that Jesus died once for all. Yes, it says he died for the elect, but it means that they have a choice. They can serve him. Everyone who wants to call upon the name of the Lord can be saved. If that wasn't true, then God would be playing games, telling us things that looked one way and looked a complete other way. So what does God do? Well, God predestines us by his foreknowledge that we could walk in Christ, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. That's what Romans, uh, uh, yeah, Romans 9 tells us, that 
God foreknows that we're going to commit our lives to him. And then he predestines us to be like Christ. God's doing a work inside of us. I've got another passage that I want to show you here. And this is from Ephesians 2 and it's verse 10 where it says, let's see, uh, verse, yeah, verse 10, where it says, for we are his workmanship. That means God's working inside of each one of us. And I love that. Doesn't mean he's predestining us, but he's working inside of us. Uh, and we are his workmanship created in Jesus Christ for good works. So he's created us, he's working in us, that we can do good works, that we can do the things God called us to do. This has nothing to do with salvation. It has what we to do with what we do after salvation, that we reveal that we've really, truly, genuinely come to Christ because of the works that we do. And then it goes on to say, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's predestination. So we are his workmanship created for good works in Christ that we would walk in them that he prepared prepared beforehand for us. Now, he's going to prepare things beforehand for me that go along with my character, that go along with my calling. God knew that Judas was a traitor, that he was a thief, that he wasn't loyal, that he was a pretender, all of those things were true about Judas. And that's what we did last week. We went over all the passages that told us what Judas was thinking and why he did what he did. And so God predestined him to play the role of a traitor. Now the question is asked, what would have happened had Judas not done it? Well, God would have foreknown that Judas wouldn't have done it. Maybe there would have been another traitor, another one with his characteristics that would have fulfilled that role. Maybe God wouldn't have had that role at all. We don't need the role of Judas in order to have redemption. We don't, God could have had them arrest Jesus in another way. There didn't need to be a betrayer, but God used Judas because he knew the kind of character that he was, the hypocrisy, the lack of loyalty. And so he predestined that he would walk in these things and he did because that's who Judas was. God does predestine. And, and, and sometimes we run into the sovereignty of God. There are certain things. The day I'm appointed a day to die, and that's God's sovereignty. Now, I might be able to move up that day. I might be able to move up early by, by doing some foolish thing. But there's no way that I'm going to miss that date. It's God's sovereignty. I believe that God had predestined for me to live in Tucson. I was living in Albuquerque. I think he predestined. It's one of the things that God called me to do. It was predestined for me to do that. And you have calls in your life that God predestines. Doesn't mean that you can't walk away from it, but God would foreknow that you would walk away from it and would not have predestined it. Or if he prepared works for you to walk in and you refuse to walk in them, then doesn't mean you're fighting against God's predestination or you're just not walking in what God has prepared for you. I wanna walk in everything that God has prepared for me. I know God has predestined certain things in my life, specifically that I would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And predestination doesn't mean that I'm going against my own will or that God overrides my will. God gave man free choice. 
And if God just created us to do things and there's nothing else that we can do, like I'm predestined right now to take a drink of water, and there's no way that I could have gotten around that, then why would God create us anyway? Some say, well, God created us for his glory. He created us to know him and walk with him, to find life with him. And yes, through our lives to bring glory to God. That is true. But you don't have to have predestination in order to glorify God. So I do believe in predestination. I don't believe it's the way that lapsetarian or reformed or Calvinists say that it is. I believe that God through his foreknowledge, which they say he sets aside, what with the passage that says, whom God foreknew, he also predestined. A strong Calvinist is going to say, well, that means he preordained it. But it doesn't make any sense that way. Whom God foreknew, he also foreordained for him to walk in it. It's kind of like the saying the same thing twice. Whom God foreknew, he knew you'd come to Christ. He predestined you to be conformed into the image of God. So when you come to Christ, he moves and works in your life in that way. So no, Judas did not have to betray Jesus. No, Judas did not have to come to that place where uh, he couldn't make a choice, that he had to do what was there. He was going to do it. He was gonna do it all along. Those circumstances being brought up, he was going to do it. He was gonna be filled with, he's gonna be possessed by Satan and he was going to do those things. Do I feel sorry for Judas? Yes. Do I think that he was some kind of hero? No. Do I think that he was in cahoots with Jesus? No. I think the Bible is very clear and it says what it means and means what it says. And a lot of times people will be critical of God and the Bible by talking about Judas and how he had no choice because the Bible foretold it. Nope, we all have choice, we can all choose, but God knew the kind of things that he would do. So it's good to see you guys, really glad to have you here with us today. Uh, good to see all of you guys uh, logging in. I hope you've had a great day. Um, we have a question from Andre. Andre, this time I got your question right out of the chute. Um, so uh, Andre says, the sons of prophets in both Bethel and Jericho who knew the day the Lord was taking Elijah away. And so did Elisha. Why did Elisha tell them to keep quiet? Even Elijah knew, 2 Kings 3 through 9. All right, well, let's just go ahead and take a look at that passage. And um, I've got some ideas here on why he told them uh, to be quiet. It kind of reminds me of Paul on his missionary journey as the prophets got a word from God that Paul was gonna be arrested in Jerusalem, but Paul had already determined to go. They had misread or misinterpreted the prophecies. Just because someone gets a word from God doesn't mean they understand it completely. And I think that, that they might think it means one thing when actually it means something else. So let's just read a little bit of this and we'll see if we can get Andre the sense of what's being said here. It says in verse three of 2 Kings chapter two, now the sons of the prophets were at Bethel, came out to Elisa and said to him, do you know that the Lord will take away your master from you today? And he said, yes now, keep silent. Then Elijah said to him, Elisha stay here, 
pleased for the Lord has sent me on to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will go, I will leave, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho came to Elisha and said to him, do you know that the Lord will take away your master from you today? And so he answered, yes, I know, keep silent. Then Elijah said to him, stay here, please. And the Lord said, had sent me away to Jordan. And he said, as the Lord lives and as your soul, I will not leave you. So the two of them go on from there. So I think what's happening here is that God is testing, hold on a second here. Um, uh oh, let's see. Uh, am I still on? You guys still there? Ah, I had something kind of freak out here. All right. So I think I think what's going on here now is that the Lord is testing Elisha, not Elijah, Elisha, that God's testing him, and that the prophets have been told what it is that they are going to do. That that they are going to go. Um, that Elijah is going to be taken away, and God's revealed it. But Elijah is going to go and do it. It's not being told to them, revealed to them, to stop it from happening, but to show what God's done. It might not even be for Elisha, and it might not even be for Elijah. It may be for, it, it may be for them themselves to know later on that God was moving and that God was doing something very specific. I have a case of prophecy in my life where God gave a word to me. And I'm always, I, I, I was in the Pentecostal church long enough to see a lot of things that weren't true, to see a lot of people claim that they were speaking for God when they weren't speaking for God. And, and if you've been in the Pentecostal church for a while, you've probably seen those things as well. But there are a few times when I go, God was speaking, God was doing something. One of them was a prophecy that was given to me. I had a business at the time. I was a 19 or 20 years old, and we had a prophet come to our church. It was a four-square church. He came on Sunday night. His name was Brother Beard. And um, after he preached for a while, he started prophesying to people. He would have people stand up, and he would give them a word from God. And he had me stand up. I still remember where I was sitting. It's a very distinct moment in my life. And he said to me, God's called you to another city to start a work. But before that, you're going to start a few businesses. And then he kind of moved on. Now, I thought about it later on, and I thought maybe somebody there could have told him that I already had a business. I had an entrepreneurial mindset, but it was pretty specific. I sold the business that I had and I opened up one in Berlin and then later on one in Albuquerque on Wyoming, Auto Improvements Unlimited. So he did say businesses. And I don't, there was no way anybody could know that I would open up two different businesses. And so then, uh, things, um, all right, uh, so I take it, I'm still going here. So I'm just going to continue on, um, even though it looks like my, my, oh, there we go. Never mind. A user error. There was no way that he knew that I would have several businesses and, and that I would move to another town, he said, and that I was going to start a church. 
Now, he could know I wanted to start a church, but to know that I would move to another town. Now, I forgot about it and things went on. It took a few years for things to develop. I moved out to Tucson when I was 25 years old. I was a youth pastor uh, before that at Calvary Albuquerque. And about three or four years later, when things got tough, had some people problems. People problems in the church are the worst. And I began to wonder, is this really what God wants? Is this really it? And God reminded me of that prophecy from Brother Beard. And I was suddenly sure, you know what? God foresaw that I'm supposed to be here. It wasn't for that moment. People might've thought, why would God have him say that? I didn't do it because of it. I'd even forgot about the prophecy. But God knew there would come a time when I needed to know that he called me so that I would just stick to my guns and continue to do what I was doing. Because sometimes when things get crazy and people get crazy, you know, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 13, let it be a joy for those who rule over you and not a, um, and not grie a grief because that would be better for you. I don't think he's saying it would be better for you because you're gonna be cursed. I think he's saying it's better if the person that's watching out for your soul is able to do so with joy. If you're able to bless them and it can be done with joy. Some things were happening that had taken the joy away from ministry, but God reassured me that I was supposed to be there. So maybe something like that, Andre, is happening here with Elijah. Maybe Elijah needs to know to go forward. And so the word's being given, maybe, Elisha and something for Elisha later on to need to know maybe it's something that these prophets need to know but God gives these prophecies for the reason that God gives them and um like I said I'm I'm am skeptical over spiritual gifts because I've seen so many faked but being skeptical of spiritual gifts I believe that they are for today I believe people use them and I believe there are times, and that's why the Bible says, don't despise prophecy, but let everyone test it. It could be something that is so easily misused, but the, the spiritual gifts are for today and continue to move on today. And I have that own experience in my life, and that doesn't mean anything to anybody else, but it persuades me that God had that supernatural moment for me. All right, so thank you very much, Andre. Hopefully that is helpful as to why God uh, would reveal that. And again, it reminds me of, of Paul being revealed that he was going to be arrested in Jerusalem. And, and, and then they wept and Paul said, why are you breaking my heart? I'm ready to die for Jesus. So God wasn't giving it to him. It doesn't seem to stop him, but to continue to reveal to the people around them that God's hand was in them going, I think they just misconstrued it. All right, Andre, thank you very much. I'm glad I got your question today and did not skip over it. I have a question now from Fact Check These Hands. Fact Check These Hands, good to see you. Hi, Pastor. Uh, is there an, an app or program you recommend for Bible, for reading the Bible? I want to read it in the correct chronological order. Um, I'll tell you what I use. I use Version Bible, and I like it a lot. And the reason that I like it a lot is because I can, I use Apple computers and my Apple phone, and I can copy it on my phone and paste it on my computer. So for making notes for my Bible studies, it's really easy. It's simplified and taking some time off of things. I can also search really well. It can also read to you. Now, 
I do not know whether there is a chronological, if they've got any kind of a chronological Bible in here. I wouldn't be surprised that they, whether or not they do. I'm just taking a moment here to see under the C's. I don't see a chronological Bible, um, but it be, would be worth checking out. Um, the nice thing about the U version is you can re have it read for you as you are making your way through. Um, so I do know there's chronological Bibles. I would be surprised if there's not an app for chronological Bibles. I can read it for you while you're, you know, driving around town or driving to work. Um, I will, if I can remember, uh, take a look to see if I can find it. But um, I do think that there is something out there. Um, but I, I have come become so familiar with U version. That's what I just pulled up on you. This is uh, this is U version. And I don't know that you guys can't see. Um, I can pull it up. Uh, let me just do it here. I could pull it up and I've got all of these different versions of the Bible that I can look through. And I was looking to see if there was any um, any chronological Bibles and I didn't see anything here. But there are so many different versions and I can toggle between those versions really, really easy. And so it is very, very helpful. Um, but as far as being able to read, I'm sure there is an app, and I don't know, sorry, um, if you've already looked in your app store to see if there's any, but that's where I would start. Remember, sometimes the app store doesn't have an app. You can go, you, you got to search for it, and then you go to the web page, and you download the app from their web page onto your phone, and then you have the app on your phone, all right? But um, uh, a great thing to do to read through the Bible in chronological order it really helps. Um, and do so, fact check these hands, do so ready to take notes. Again, I take almost all my notes now. I barely ever write notes out anymore. Um, in my office as it stands, I've got my station here for the YouTube station. I've got a desk off to my right where I study. I studied there today and um, I've just got the desk in. So I'm excited about having it. Um, but I used to write a lot of things down as I made my way through. And I now use notes on my phone to do that. Um, but you're going to have a lot of questions as it comes up because you're going to, well, why did that happen here? What did this happen here? It's going to cause so many things for you to look up. And that's the beauty of the chronological Bible, not just to give you questions, but that you can start looking them up and find out the answers. And there's a depth in finding out those answers. All right. Thank you. Fact check these hands. I appreciate it. We have another question from Melissa. Melissa says, is getting a tattoo a sin or tattoo? As some people call it. I really want to get a um, Christian fish on my wrists. Um, all right, Melissa, thank you for um, asking this question. I um, recently heard John MacArthur uh, in a, I think it was a um, an interview, actually talk about uh, whether or not it was okay to have a tattoo. And um, he had to finally admit that even though he doesn't like it, uh, he thinks it's okay. In the Old Testament, the reason people got tattoos was for their for their gods. They would carve themselves, they'd make scars, they would be tattoos, or they put tattoos on there for their false gods. And because that was the surrounding culture, God told Israel, which was to stand apart, don't do it. Now we are not under the law and we have freedom in Christ. We have freedom to eat 
me, not ask whether it's been dedicated to idols or not. Freedom on the day that we serve, freedom to eat vegetables if we only want to, and you have freedom to get a tattoo. And it may become a good opportunity, Melissa, for you to be able to share Christ. I want to show you the verse. My um, late wife, Lisa, this December, she will have passed away uh, 10 years ago, had a tattoo on her wrist, right on her thumb, right here. Just so just kind of on the back of her palm of her hand and on her thumb. And it was Jude 21. She just had Jude 21 printed there. I'm going to show you what Jude 21 is. Jude 21 says, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And so when she was getting her hair done or getting her nails done, uh, people would inevitably ask her, what is Jude 21? And she would say, that's a verse that reminds me of eternal life, of what it means to be able to have the promise of eternal life. And to be with the Lord, and she would launch off into witnessing to people. So it became a tool for her that had people ask her about Christ, and that's why she had it here. Now, the crazy thing is, and I always say that tattoos are tattoos, as some say, um, are um, you get addicted to them. And sure enough, she wanted another tattoo. You know, right after she got that tattoo, she wanted another tattoo. She didn't get any more, but she wanted them. And um, I don't have any tattoos. I don't have any problem with it. But I think as far, especially like she did it as a witnessing tool, it's very powerful. She was able to share Christ and lead people to the Lord because of that tattoo on her wrist. So no, it is not sinful to get it. Um, I would question getting things that are worldly like that on your body, if it's some worldly thing, you know? It's like, I, I like hot rods, I like chargers. I have a charger, I have a 2012 heart charger that I'm actually kind of souping up and rebuilding now. I'm getting ready to rebuild the engine, I'm gonna make it more powerful. And if I had a, you know, a tattoo of the, you know, it's a dumb logo, but the charger logo or RT on my, my, my shoulder because I like cars, I don't know that I would wanna do that, but, something for Christ's sake. Now, I, I'm not going to, I'm not compelled to, but as an opportunity to be able to witness to people, it's such a powerful thing. And Jude 21 was so easy. There's only one chapter in Jude. So it was Jude 21 and a great verse and a reminder to her to keep herself in the love of God, to walk in such a way that she kept herself in the love of God. All right. So I hope that answers your question. Uh, you will get some judgment from other Christians, but when the Bible says that don't use your liberty to make somebody stumble, it's not talking about just somebody going, I, 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 I think you're sinning for having a tattoo. All right, well, that's okay. You can think I'm sinning for having it. It's when they're going to, to stumble into sin. So if somehow your tattoo was going to make somebody walk away from Christ or go back into the world or have a bout, um, you know, fall off the wagon or whatever it is. That's when it would be for the sake of other people. So I think, you know, go for it, Melissa. Look for a way uh, to use it to be able to glorify God and to have people ask questions. All right. Um, putting a verse like, like G21 may be a great way to go along with that fish. May I put them together? Um, but it really did. I, I was there multiple times when people would ask her what it meant. You know, people are just interested in tattoos and seeing it, they just would ask. All right, so uh, Jari has a question. Good to see you, Jari. Um, why didn't David mourn Absalom and Amnon 
the way he did the unborn son. Um, I shall go to him, but he will not come to me. Or I shall go to him, yeah, but he will not come to me. Um, say, why didn't he say that to his other sons? Is Solomon in heaven? Um, so very broad question here, um, Jari. Um, yeah, I think it's possible that Amnon and Absalom weren't in heaven and that David had that question for that. And if you remember, there was a deep grieving for Absalom. When, Absalom, when David had heard that Absalom had died and Absalom had taken over the kingdom and Joab and, and the rest of the men had killed Absalom at the same time and Absalom was beautiful and had won the hearts of the people and David paced back and forth and cried, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, and he wouldn't be consoled. And Joab finally rebuked him. You would today, he said, have rather have had Absalom die and the rest of us be dead. Kind of you shame us with your mourning. And David had to pull it together. So maybe that was the reason he said of his unborn son, I will go to him. Uh, he will come to me, but I will not go to him. Um, Solomon in heaven. Um, I, I, Solomon, wisest man who ever lived, ends up bringing idolatry into Israel because he married so many wives. 700 wives. I saw something that said 1,000 wives. I don't think it was 1,000, but at least 700 wives of concubines. That's a lot of wives of concubines. And he pleased, and these were marriages of convenience, or not convenience, excuse me. These were marriages to bring kingdoms together. And uh, like they would often do in the ancient world. And God didn't want kings to multiply wives or horses to themselves. And David and Solomon both did both of those. Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes where he's got every opportunity to be pleased by anything in this world, but he ends up saying it's all vanity. And that's the lesson of the book of Ecclesiastes. Everything is vain. Serve God while you're young. Did he realize that by the time that he was older and repent and go to heaven? I, off the top of my head, can't remember the chronological order of when he did certain things and when the Bible talks about him doing those wicked things and when the when he says things like um in the end of it serve god while you're young and is it possible that before he died he made things right with god no matter what he might have been doing and that god received him into heaven and i guess that's possible so sorry um jari i need to just refresh myself on the chronological order um i think i i, I said to you earlier jari i really just want to do a live hot topic on this on solomon to where we can talk about Solomon kind of from beginning to end and the lessons we learn. And um, then we can open it up to a Q&A afterwards because I think there's so many questions about Solomon uh, that would be good questions. So I think that's why he mourned differently for Am Amnon, who was the rapist who killed, who raped Absalom's sister. Absalom killed Amnon and then a coup. And then he was killed in that coup, took over the kingdom, actually. It was effective, had an effective coup and um and took over uh the kingdom so um let's see um i'm gonna wait um jari to come back and take a look at your question we're just kind of the one question per person uh this time so um we have a question from psych man next uh, psych man good to see you has a question about Revelation 7.14. Folks in Revelation 
either dead or were raptured? Yes, question mark. If raptured, uh, the rapture has happened. If they died, how do non-pre-tribbers explain God seeing us through the tribulation and all the casualties? All right, I'm trying to remember what Revelation 7, 14 is. Uh, it's um, the seals and seals like in rings sealing a scroll, not seals like arr, 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 kind of seals. So Revelation 7, verse 14. Sorry about my seal limitation there, though, but I do think it's funny. Um, maybe, yeah, I do. Revelation 7, 14. Let me put this up on the screen for you. Thank you, Psych Man, for asking your question. Let's take a look at this. Um, so it says, and I said to him, sirs, you know, well, let me just do this. Let me just come back here. I want to go back and look at what the um, subtitle of this is. The multitude from the great tribulation. So I think these are people that are killed out of the great tribulation. And so you said it's verse uh, 14. So, um, and I said to him, sir, you know. So he said to me, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in the temple of he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. And they shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore, nor sun shall strike them, nor any heat of, of the lamb who is in the midst of the throne. Uh, so if I'm reading this right and, I, and I'm remembering your question correctly, psych man, uh, they would say, that these guys are the ones that died during the tribulation period. So um, that's what they would say. If they died, how did non-tribbers explain God seeing us through the tribulation with all these casualties? Yeah, um, I exactly. The revelation says, and God gave all authority to the Antichrist over the saints. So when you say that Revelation 3.10 promises that someone will be kept in the tribulation period, not taken out of the tribulation period, then you have a problem because now you're not going to be kept from the hour of testing or through it. And I'll read that to you here. So this is Revelation 3.10. He says, because it says, because you have um, yeah, New King James. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. This is the church of Philadelphia. It's the faithful church. And God promises to them that he set a door in front of them in heaven and promises they'll be kept from the tribulation period. Um, those who believe that in the end of it say, well, this is a promise they're going to be kept through the tribulation period, not from it, that God's going to supernaturally keep them. But there's a problem because he's given power over the saints. The power over the saints there is a mention to Israel. But they, because they see, see Christians in the tribulation period not keeping from it, which God promises here that he will, then they make, well, they try to make their point that God's going to keep them supernaturally, and I don't think they will. I think it's a weak point. Um, and... Uh, Again, one of the reasons that I'm strongly pre-tribulation. And um, I, I think part of the reason that people will turn away from the 
we'll, we'll try to stay away from the pre-tribulation rapture because it sounds strange, not realizing it's part of the resurrection and that a lot of strange things are going to be going on in the end of the world. Whoever thought our government would say that there are UFOs and now certain government agents are being interviewed and saying that they believe that they are extraterrestrials. Whoever thought that would be the world we're living in, but that's the world we live in. One day, really strange things um, will come to pass. Let's see. Um, I fact check these hands, I'm going to bring this in. Um, so, um, yeah, we're kind of trying to do one question per person, so I'll, I'll do this quick. Um, will those who are um, cognitive, uh, with, that have cognitive dissonance on earth be revealed of it upon death, whether saved or not? So as to know the truth about the uh, ridiculed others for. Um, I'm not quite getting your question. Um, cognitive dissonance. Um, I'm, I'm going to pass on that. Jack, fact, um, fact check these hands. Would you try to clarify that a little bit more and um, give your definition of cognitive dissonance and how that would equate to those that you're asking the question about? All right, and um, we'll we'll take a look at it. Um, maybe not today. Uh, but we will be able to take a look at it in another one. All right. Um, and again, we're just trying to take one question per person. Sometimes I run out of them. Sometimes I got to go back and pick them up, but we can do that. But I, I do want to give people a chance who are asking questions. Uh, Deborah, uh, good to see you. Deborah has a question. Um, was requested from a friend in Tucson to ask this question. All right, here it goes. When God returns and puts Satan in the lake of fire prior to his reign on the earth, why does he release Satan again? Okay, thank you, Deborah, for your question. Uh, first of all, if I remember correctly, which I don't always, uh, he is put into a pit and chained, not thrown into the lake of fire. Then he's released on earth, and then he deceives the nations, and then he's thrown into the lake of fire. Although it's, the question is still the same. Why does God do that? I think here's why. Because the people that are alive have lived for a thousand years or close to a thousand years with Jesus on the throne. Kind of like Adam and Eve living in a perfect garden paradise, rebelled against God. And so they're, they're uh, under the iron rod of Jesus and they're serving him because they have to. And so then they too are given a choice like like we all had when Satan was influencing us in the world, whether or not they're really going to choose Christ or rebel. And so many of them do rebel and there's a, a Gog and Magog battle. I think Gog and Magog are titles, not places. And the battle that uh, it's a Gog and Magog battle again that takes place. And um, then the end of the world comes. Satan is thrown into the lake of fire along with everybody else that's judged and all of those questions. So I think that God is showing that even our, our sin nature is so bad. I'm persuaded we don't know how bad we are and we don't know how bad sin is. We kind of dismiss ourselves and think that sin is okay when we should look at really what the Bible has to say about sin and how bad it is. And I think that 
people in that time have been living and just don't realize it or how prone they are to it. And God gives them a choice like he's given to everybody else. You can live for me or you can be tempted with the devil who we're going to let out for a while to be able to tempt the earth. It seems like a strange thing to do, but I don't think it's strange because I think that they have to make a decision just like we did. And they've been grown up under that rod of iron and some of them do not and fight against God again, which will tell you the rebellion that is in the heart of man. All right. Thank you, Deborah. I appreciate that. Uh, we have a question from Kay Fox. Kay says, question, what do you think of the persecutions in India in the last few days? The time is different because it is five different states throughout India. There are five stories of unreal. Uh, there, there are five stories are unreal and beautiful. So I'm just going to have to plead ignorance here, Kay. Um, unfortunately, I just don't watch the news much. And um, that means sometimes I miss out on things that are happening. So I don't know about these persecutions or what's happening there. I just haven't heard of them. Uh, I will, as, as I get caught up, I'll, I'll come back and I'll remark on them, all right, for you. But again, I just kind of have to pass on this because I don't know. I don't know what persecutions we're talking about in India today. Uh, I do know there's the untouchables in India, some other things, but I don't know of anything that's happening at this point in time. Um, and um, yeah, so um, let me bring this other question in, okay? Uh, we do a question from a person, but since I passed on that, I'll bring this one in. Uh, if we wear different color robes based on our lives on earth, doesn't that lead to shame or pride? Um, that's news to me. So I, I don't know about the different color robes. <laughs> Feels like there's a lot of things that I'm not quite sure of. Um, is there a passage that says that we have different color robes? If there is, I don't know of it, which would be interesting. Um, let me just take a moment to think. So I pastored Calvary Tucson this October will be 37 years. We've gone through the Bible four times, certain books in the Bible, we've done more than that. Um, Joseph had a coat of many colors, different color robes. I, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. I'm trying to think through the churches of revelation. Um, I, I don't know. Somebody give it to me. If I, if I missed it, I miss it. I, I don't know. So I'm sorry, Kay, I'm going to have to pass on your question again. Um, what, um, I don't know. I don't know what the different color robes are. So, uh, all right. Thank you very much, Kay. Sorry. There wasn't much help there. Sometimes when you're talking off the top of your head, you know, you don't have time to prepare or even look anything up. So, um, Emperorless Kimberly says, hello, Pastor Robert. Good to see you, Kimberly. Uh, doesn't God make vessels for destructions and vessels for mercy? Romans 9, 19 through 24. Read this three times before sending it. Ah, good. Thank you very much. All right. Yes, I, I'm, I'm very glad that you asked your question. Let me take time to look up Romans here because it does speak to the question that we brought up about predestination in the beginning and that God can make vessels of honor or dishonor, which is what this passage is going to end up saying. And I want to tell you right away, Kimberly, that I think that they read it wrong. So let's go ahead and pull it up and 
we will take a look at what it says here. This is Romans 9. And I think you said, let me just check here, Romans 9, um, 19 through 24. So let me get to the right place here. Um, da, 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 da. All right, there's 19. All right, so let me go ahead and put it up here. All right, you will say to me, then why does he still find fault for whom he has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply to God? Will the thing formed say to the thing that formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have the power over the clay for from the same lump to make one vessel of honor and one of dishonor? What if God wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much song, long suffering the vessels of wrath or prepared for destruction and that and that he might make known the riches of his glory and vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand even us who he called not of the Jews only but also of the Gentiles all right so good passage so here's the basic Calvinistic um, reformed lapsitarian teaching God randomly takes two people that he made from clay and he made one to burn in hell forever and he made another one to be in God's glory forever and he does this randomly and they don't like the word random I don't know what other word to use he does this not using his foreknowledge at all he doesn't use his foreknowledge to determine this guy foreknew he foreknew this guy would not follow him this guy would why they take the foreknowledge of God out of the equation I don't know that's a, a big question, but that's what they say. And then who are you to speak against God? So you're going to go, that's unfair of God, that he would throw, make a person to suffer in hell, to, to, have his, to gnash his teeth in darkness and suffering for all of eternity. And, and he had no choice. God just created him for that purpose. Who are you to speak against God? Pull it together. You don't talk to God that way. You don't talk about God that way. That's not what this passage is saying. When this passage is talking about God choosing and rejecting, he starts by talking about Jacob and Esau and says, Jacob, I have loved Esau, I have hated. He's talking about the nation of Israel and the nation of Esau, the Edomites. And, and he makes the quote from the Old Testament where he's making the same reference. He's, not, he's talking that he knew two nations would come out of Abraham's womb. And he knew that Israel, that it was his chosen people and that Esau was going to rebel, Edom was going to rebel. And so God was going to judge them. And so he ended up hating them for their sin and iniquity, even though he loved them as individuals and would have loved or loved them, in, would have loved for them to come to Christ. But instead, through their iniquity, ended up getting the wrath and hatred of God instead. So you can't divorce Romans 9 from Romans 10. And Romans 10 tells us, and let me just go, I'm just going to go there. I'm going to read this to you. So we can take a few minutes to do this. Um, let me get back to uh, Romans again, Romans 10. So Romans 9 says, God makes some for vessels for honor and dishonor, and who are you to talk about God? So in Romans 10, in verses, um, we'll just go to, um, oh, I'm still in Romans 9. I'm like, what is it saying here? All right, Romans 10, I'm going to go to verse 8 to start. Um, so here it says, um, but what does it say? The word of God is near you, even in your mouth and heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, not if you're chosen as a vessel of destruction. You will not even have a chance to be able to do this. And it says, 
Um, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth one confesses unto salvation. Not according to Reformed. They believe you're either chosen to do it or you're not chosen to do it. They're going to say the chosen ones are going to do it. The not chosen ones are not going to do it. And then it says, for the scripture says whoever. Well, not according to Calvinism. For whoever says, uh, whoever says, uh, for the scripture say whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Well, well, only some can really believe. Whoever doesn't really apply. It's only the one God has chosen. It doesn't follow. It doesn't make sense. So what God is saying in Romans chapter 10, and I, uh, uh, Kimberly, in, in, in Romans chapter 9, is God has chosen as vessels for honor those whom believe. If you believe, you will be saved. Remember, Romans is dealing with the, those who are legalistic, those who want to go back to the law. It's dealing with the same issues Galatians was dealing with. And he's saying, if God chose the ones to believe to be vessels of honor and the ones who don't believe to be vessels of dishonor, who are you to speak against God? God can make it so that someone can just believe that they don't have to keep the law in order to be saved. God's able to do that, that God is sovereign. And God chose that if you believe, if you have faith, if you call on the name of the Lord, if you receive him as your savior, you will be saved. Now that doesn't mean that God doesn't draw because John 6, says, no one can come to Christ unless God draws him. But it doesn't mean that everybody God draws has got to come. God draws and there are people who respond and don't respond. And so the vessel of honor and dishonor there was an example of the Old Testament of Israel and Esau as a nation that rejected God and a nation that accepted God, although they had a lot of problems. But I could argue that Christians have a lot of problems today too, right? I mean, I could argue that same exact argument. So you can't divorce Romans 9 from Romans 10 and say God determines that he wants to make a vessel of dishonor. He can make it, and that, that vessel has nothing to say about it but whoever believes on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, all you've got left are your vessels of honor, but it says whoever. Why would it say whoever? And they have to deal with that all over the Bible. They didn't have to come in and they have to have special. This isn't what it means. This is what it says, but it's not what it means. When the Bible says whoever will, let him come. I know it says that, but that's not what it means. When the Bible says God desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. I know it says that, but that's not what it means. And when you've got to do that, to passage after passage that you actually, this is a literary term, do violence to the text. When you come to the scriptures and you actually are changing what the scriptures say because it doesn't fit your theology, then I have to reject it because I think the Bible says very clearly what it says and means. And there are places where some things are darker and there are shadows. It might mean darker, it's just harder to see and we just can't really see it clearly. We kind of got to shrug our shoulders and make our own decisions about it. But not when it says God so loved the world that whoever would believe in him will have everlasting life. You can't take the whoever out of there. You can't say, well, God didn't really mean whoever. Well, in their day, in the Greek, whoever didn't mean whoever. It only meant whoever really was chosen. Whatever you're going to say to try to deal with that passage, it is ineffective. God has the right to say the vessels of honor 
will be those who believe in the name of Jesus. And if you reject Jesus, then you will be a vessel of dishonor. For the Romans, they were believing that if you kept the law, you could be saved. And so the Romans, that was a much harder way to be saved. And, and it brings it runs into pride. I, I, I kept the, I keep the law, I keep the dietary laws, I keep the calendar. And you run into all kinds of pride. That's why the Bible says, we are saved by grace through faith, not of any works. So they divorced chapter nine from the passages around it, talking about being saved by the law and, and Paul talking about grace in Romans. And then they, they, they forget that not, chapter 10 follows chapter nine. And my little joke that I say, which may not be funny, but I say it anyway. And that is, this is really profound. Chapter 10 of Romans follows chapter nine. So if you're confused about what he means when he's talking about vessels of honor and dishonor, keep reading. When you get to chapter 10, you're like, oh, those who believe in the Lord will be saved. Those that believe that God has raised him from the dead. When you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. All others are vessels of dishonor. And who are you to say God can't do it? So when I have a, a Calvinist who will get uppity and point at me, who are you to say God can't do that? I'm like, exactly. Who are you to say God can't allow anyone who believes, anyone to be saved? Because that's what the Bible's teaching and, and not teaching that God has only chosen the elect, which is the hardest position of Calvinism to defend because the Bible says Jesus died for all. He died once for all. And so some will say, well, then his work wasn't sufficient for all. Yeah, it was, it was sufficient for everybody. If everybody in the world would believe there's enough in the blood of Christ to save everybody. So those kind of arguments don't, um, don't work. And um, I, I'm not saying if you're a Calvinist, uh, reformed, even if you're extreme, that you're not saved. This is an in-house argument, but I think it's a important in-house argument because I want to see, do all I can do to give people a chance to make a decision to turn to Christ and live for him. All right. So thank you very much, uh, Empress Kimberly. Really good question. I hope that's helpful. You're welcome to give a follow through even today. We have a little bit of time left or um, on another time to be able to uh, clarify that if you have any more questions on that. All right. So it's been really good uh, hanging out with you guys today. Uh, just looking into the Word of God. Really good questions today. We have another one here from Violet Stag. Violet Stag, good to see you. Uh, Violet Stag says, "Why did what did Paul mean in 1 Corinthians 11, 14 concerning men having long hair? I'm a guy and I am growing out my hair, so I would like to help understand this verse. All right, thank you for your question. Let me Let's go ahead and go there. This is 1 Corinthians 11, which is a This is only one question out of 1 Corinthians 11. If you're, if you're saying, I want to ask a question, but I don't know what question to ask, go read 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You'll have all kinds of questions to ask me, all right? And um, I better study up on 1 Corinthians 11 to make sure I've got all the, the answers to everything that's there. Uh, so uh, first of all, um, let me go ahead and uh, bring on the scriptures here. Violet Stag. So um, here it is. Uh, it says, 
Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it dishonors him? All right, uh, judge, uh, and then in verse 13, judge among yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself tell you that if a man has long hair, it's a shame to himself? Uh, I think the King James, and let's, let's fact, let's go to the King James to see if it does say that. I think it says in the King James that um, a man is, sorry to do this with, with you guys getting, I hope you didn't get you dizzy or sick, um, that it's a shame. So yeah, so it says, let's read both these verses together, 13, 14, judge yourself, it, com it, um, it uh, comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered, doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a shame unto him. Man, I'm so glad we have the New King James Bible. I wouldn't want to have to read the uh, King James all the time. Uh, all right, so uh, Violet Stag. I remember, I'm, I'm gonna tell you something first and then we're gonna answer the question. So I remember listening to Pastor Chuck. Um, this is when I'm in my 20s and I had pretty long hair in my 20s. Um, Earlier 20s, my daughter was born in 84. I have a picture of me from holding her up and kissing her from behind. Maybe I'll bring up the picture at some point and show you guys. And I'm kissing her. My hair is pretty long. And um, I'll show it to people and ask them, who is that? Because they have no idea that it's me. Um, so Pastor Chuck used to say, and remember, Pastor Chuck, this is during the time of the hippies. They're all around. So Pastor Chuck would say, I'll, I'll do my Pastor Chuck for you. Pastor Chuck would say, Now, the Bible doesn't say it's sin for a man to have long hair. It simply says it's a shame. So I see a man walking down the street, and he's got long hair, and I say, Oh, what a shame. So that was, that was Pastor Chuck's interpretation of that passage, at least at that particular point in time, and probably was joking about it to some degree. Um, so all of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, is talking about some rebellious women who are who are purposely somehow rebelling against the authority of their husbands because in their day culturally they covered their head meaning they would put their hair up they would keep their head covered however they wore it in Corinth Corinth is a very distinct place there was a temple on a hill up by Corinth there were prostitutes that came down into the city wasn't a huge city and prostitution was, there's a lot of it in Corinth. And so later on it says, don't braid your hair because as I understand it, prostitutes in their day braided their hair as a way to let people know that they were a prostitute. So the women in Corinth were letting their hair down. Now to them in their culture, they would keep their hair up until they were with their husbands alone in an intimate moment and then they would let their hair down. And so Paul says the glory of a woman is her hair. And some women were going to the church with their hair down. Maybe it was the culture, maybe the culture had begun to do that. And Paul is upset as he writes 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you can hear it in his tone, that these women would have such disrespect for their husbands, that they're, they're, they're not under the authority, the covering of their husbands, by letting their hair down. And Paul says, I would that they would just shave it off, just shave it, just go ahead and shave your hair off. Is Paul so upset about it? Um, and again, maybe it has to do, probably it has to do with the a lot of prostitution that takes place in Corinth 
And the church is living in this and some of them are falling in it, we know that. Because the first Corinthians 6, he says, don't you know that you're the temple of Christ and when you join yourself to a prostitute, you're joining Christ to a prostitute? So he has to really speak to them about this issue. And so then he says, the glory of a man is his wife and the glory of his wife of a woman is her hair. And so he's kind of making this point that this is for your husband and you let down your hair and it's the glory and that's for your husband to see. So I think that that's what's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and we can cover the passage more, but it definitely was a cultural thing. And remember, if you took a Nazarite vow, you'd grow your hair out. So when Paul says um, that it is, um, what is it that the uh, King James says again? Um, that it is a dishonor to him. He's talking about looking feminine. And so we we venture into the transgender area today to where does the nature show yourself that if a man were to let his hair down and there were people in the Roman culture that were, were struggling with gender identity for sure. And that he's, and, and there's other places in the New Testament that he says that women ought to dress like women and men ought to dress like men. That's why some churches today still don't allow women to wear pants. Like a woman wearing pants isn't a feminine thing in our culture today, because it certainly is. You know, it's, it's just a silly thing. Um, but for you, Violet and Stag, to wear long hair is not a problem. It's in, in, unless you start, you know, putting on makeup and looking like a girl, then this would come into play. But just growing your hair out or having long hair um, is not a sin. This is cultural. Um, you don't don't want to look feminine. Um, we've got those at the church that have long hair, have had long hair forever, been at the church forever with it, don't look feminine, and I don't think that that is a problem. So I think that that's what that's talking about, and sorry to go so long on that one question, um, but I think it's worth getting a little bit of background that's there, all right? So it has been good being with you guys today. Good seeing you here. Uh, we will have another Q&A. Let me see if I can remember exactly which day it is. Wednesday night, we'll have another Q&A on Saturday at four o'clock. Um, been a lot of good questions here. If you have any other questions, continue to ask them. And if we close out, because I'm getting ready to, um, uh, all right. So yeah, I see other questions here. I'm going to get this log sent to me. I'm going to be able to take time. I sit down, and I read through um, the different things that are said. I really appreciate you guys and um, all of your encouragement that you give me, by the way, here. And I do see your question. Um, Rod and um, yeah, there's a lot of questions here. So what I'll do is I'm gonna look through these. I'm gonna find a question for the next Q&A on Saturday. And you're welcome to join us if I don't choose your question and to re-ask your question then, all right? So um, get here early and get your questions asked um, early and to make sure that we're able to cover them. And um, that's the reason. So we have three or four questions that weren't answered. And that's the reason that we only take one question from one person. All right. So love you guys. Stay close to Jesus. Um, serve him, love him, walk with him, spend time praying, asking God for help, talking to him about your struggles, uh, making commitments to him. Be careful what you vow. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. 
and draw close to him. He's promised, if you draw close to me, I will draw close to you. Walk in the spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Delight in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. Abide in Jesus and let his word abide in you. All right, so uh, make sure to write your questions down uh, so that you can remember them. And we will see you on Saturday or next Wednesday, four o'clock tonight, we have a service. We're in Revelation chapter one. Um, We're gonna be going through verses nine through 20 but we're gonna do two different things there. There's the revelation of Jesus, and then there's the revelation of what he does and tells John around the revelation of who he is. And I just don't have enough time to cover both of those. So tonight I'm gonna cover the revelation of Jesus, and then next week I'll cover the things that Jesus in in this vision sight with the eyes like fire and sword like a spirit says to John, because the things that he says are very important, and I don't wanna try to cram them both into a Bible study. I already have trouble covering just a few verses I'm covering. So tonight, the amazing vision of of, that John had in Revelation chapter one. Uh, You can join us in about an hour. It says some really grand things about, about our Savior and our access to him as we live and walk in this world. All right, I'm gonna be late, so I gotta go. God bless you guys, I'm out. We will see you next time.